Welcome to another show of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. My name is Julian Guderlein. I'm your show host. Today, I have one of my friends on the line, Jordan Lejewan. Jordan recently got named one of Forbes 30 under 30 in the category media. He's a serial entrepreneur, philanthropical consciousness. This guy has started several movements, several websites with millions of clicks each month. And Jordan is right now working on a new project that he'll talk about a little bit called the Global Gifting Circle. Yeah, very exciting news on his end. And then also, Jordan and I are diving into topics such as universal basic income, artificial intelligence, blockchain, space travel, and all that goodness. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. So I'm stoked to have you on the show here and just to dive a little bit deeper in who you are, what you do, what inspires you and what you, um, yeah, I think I want to talk with you about the topic of purpose because that's really something that lights me up and I know we have a lot of common in there. So Jordan, just um, let's just kick it off. I want to know, it's early morning for you in New York right now. Like, how do you start your days? Do you have a routine? Do you like need something to kick into flow? Like, how does, how does the life of Jordan look like? Yeah, for sure. I think waking up early is like the number one most important thing for me to feel good throughout the day. And don't always get there depending on when I go to sleep. But well, I guess fine. Eight hours of sleep and then waking up early and then some form of mindful practice in the morning. Recently, because it's been like freezing cold in New York, usually I go for walks. And that's what I love. But um, because it's been so cold outside, I've actually been using the Muse headset for meditation, which I just tried for the first time maybe two weeks ago. And I love it. It's been out for like four or five years and I've never tried it. It's fantastic. Yeah, are you familiar with the, the Muse? Um, I haven't used it. I know of it. It's like one of those uh, strapped behind your ears kind of headsets. Tell us about it. So what is it? Why is it different than regular meditation? Uh, because you're getting instant feedback. So it's connecting to your phone via Bluetooth and it like goes here. So it's reading EEG and basically there's music. There's like kind of soundscapes like desert waves, forests, whatever that are coming out of your phone, or your headphones and the, the kind of the, the sounds and the intensity of the sounds is indicating to you how mindful you're being. Um, and what it's doing is actually measuring basically the steadiness of your brain activity. So if you're like high frequency, low frequency, then like the, say the, the noise of the waves crashing on the, the beach will get really loud, like very tumultuous and it'll oh, let wow. you know you need to get, you need to focus in and get calm. And then if you get really, really calm, then birds start chirping. And that's like a subtle thing. Oh my God. That's like an amazing way to understand exactly how your, your brain waves. Is it brain waves only, or is it also the heartbeat? Just brain. Just brain. Interesting, because yeah. I use something um, with, uh, I think the HeartMath Institute has created that one. It's called Inner Balance Sensor. And it, it does, it's like a clip on your earlobe and then it measures yeah. your heart rate variability. Very similar. So unfortunately, I don't get birds to sing at me. But um, Well, you... that, that part's interesting because you kind of have to remain detached from the outcome also. Because it, it's a, it was a little bit like doing a Vipassana or something in that when you get the birds, you kind of like, oh, I want, I'm doing well. And it brings <laughs> up a mental process that kind of pulls you away from being present. So you have to like, you know, no matter if the, the waves are crashing harder or the birds are chirping, you need to stay focused. So it's interesting. Interesting. So for you, like a mindful practice in the morning is a total must? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah, something to ground down, ideally before you jump into, you know, work or anything else. And I've, I've experimented with going into work first and like doing meditation after, two, you know, like two hours in. That's interesting. But what seems to work well is just first thing in the morning. Interesting. So is it like Tony Robbins kind of priming idea? Like, do you do breath work and like, do you write at all or what else is part of it for you? It's, I mean, it's mainly the walk. Like when, as soon as winter's out, walks are my main form of meditation. 
I love them because it's, it's like, it puts you in this cool in-between phase where you're walking and you can, you know, be mindful of your, your feet touching the ground, or you can even focus on your breath while you're walking. And you're just ever so slightly distracted by having to have your eyes open and kind of navigating and random things visually coming up on your walk. So I find that you kind of go back and forth between being super present and like slightly distracted. And it puts you in this interesting space where ideas can just poke through. Mm. So most while being while being influenced by your environment right so this is something that most people when they meditate usually it's like eyes closed like i don't want any distraction but you're kind of in that zone in between where you're still being inspired exactly yeah and pretty much every amazing idea i've ever had has come from a walk i find like meditation is fantastic for kind of like honing the tool that is your mind and like sharpening it and making it so that you can choose to be focused or choose to imagine or whatever else giving you that that control that choice but the walk is yeah. like creativity and just kind of like messages from the universe. That's the, that's the space for me. Amazing. So you, you were mentioning Vipassana. So you, you've been in, in silent meditations before? I did one Vipassana roughly three years ago. Yeah. And cool. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Vipassana. I'm sure you can read my article. It would, I think the, the phrase that I used was like meditation hell or something like that, which it, anyone who's done Vipassana, I'm pretty sure would agree with me. It was the most difficult, trying, intense thing I've ever done in my life by far. But I would say it was worth it. Yeah, I, I agreed. It was kind of a hard one to sit through just Oh, yeah. Just doing nothing. I mean, for me, what I really, the, the reason why I wanted to come back to it too, is I really realized we do a lot of walking in the Vipassana I went to. So there was like seated practice and then walking practice. So it really gave my walking meditation actually a complete new dimension. Because before, you know, I never had the time to spend three hours walking. <laughs> <laughs> and I never chose to make the time. So now I, I had this like forced practice of walking meditation and I, I learned to like basically walk mindfully. Did that originate there for you as well? Or did you like, is that something you, yeah, you just that was, that was before that? That's been a really long time practice. For cool. Cool. Yeah. I love asking those questions because I think here's the thing, right? Like we all get like inspiring quotes on mass on the internet or like we know what to do, but then it really comes back down to like, what's your daily life looking like and how much time do you choose to allocate for these kind of, yeah, elements like priming or elements like making space for yourself to arrive in like your creative zone so after that do you, do you jump right into work or, or like what, what else do you do that's like a, a regular staple go-to for you pretty much jumping to work yeah like work is my like favorite thing in the world pretty much i love checking things off the to-do the to list always have so some people might call me a hard worker I, you could also just call it addiction to like checking things off but whatever the outputs the out the outcome is the same so yeah Interesting. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your projects. I mean, you've been creating amazing companies basically nonstop, right? Like the last thing you've been working on, I think, uh, futurism.com. Uh, some people who are listening might know that one. Rave Nectar that you created with, with, I think, your brother and your family. Valhalla Movement, all these thing, amazing projects. Tell us a little bit about like, what is it that you're so like inspired to bring into, into this world? But, so that's like a moving target. Since dropping out of school in 2009, when my story got kind of interesting, I've been trying to figure out what's the number one thing I can put my time into that's going to have the greatest impact. And so it's been pretty much just a series of experiments. So the first thing was starting a website called highexistence.com. And back then, um, I thought the ultimate thing was to like get everyone to learn how to meditate, get everyone to try psychedelics and get everyone to be more productive pretty much and figure out what their passion is. I still think all those things are super important. It's just not exactly where my focus is now. I basically, you know, get excited about and kind of shift what I think is the most important thing and the way that I can contribute the most that changes over time. And then I just start new organizations or companies around whatever I'm focused on at the time. Cool. For example, yeah. it 
from the thesis that it's hard to get people to meditate and, and not everyone should try psychedelics. You know, it's, it's hard to convince everyone in the world to do that. But technology is a really amazing, like forcing of the hand, you know, like mm-hmm. basically technology can make the right choice, the moral choice, the environmentally friendly choice, the easy, cheap and obvious choice. So that's why Futurism was born, was thinking that, you know, we want to push forward these technologies. They're going to have a major impact on society. And we want people to be informed about those technologies, too. Cool. Well, but it's one thing to be, like, passionate about something and, like, have it at the forefront of your mind. And it's another thing to create a a company out of it that touches millions of people, basically, like, right off the get-go. And you've done that multiple times in a row now. So I think it's more than you just have, like, beginner's luck or some kind of, like passion that you share with a couple of people like there must be like either a formula or just some kind of like ultra focus that really defines who you are and how you work and i'd love to hear a little bit about that Hmm. yeah interesting question let's see i think the the thing that is probably the biggest differentiator between me and someone who's passionate about something and isn't creating something about it is just probably naivety and like a really uh, intense work ethic. So the, the thing I always say to people is that when you do have an idea and want to start something, you never have any idea how to do it. I mean, unless you're like, you know, way far down the line and you've done it a bunch of times before. And even then there's going to be a bunch of challenges that you can't foresee and you don't have answers to. So the kind of rationale I, I or this kind of metaphor I use is that when you're starting something, it's like you're walking through a dark forest with a, with a single flashlight. Like it's okay that you can't see 30 feet in front of you or like, you know, 10 years, five years, one month, one day in front of you. All you need to see is the step right in front of you and take that step and then just keep doing that. Don't worry about how you're going to get to a million fans or this many readers or this much money. Just like, oh, I have this idea. Okay, what's what's first? Oh, maybe buying a domain. That sounds important. I'll do that. Okay, what's the next thing? Oh, I don't know what the next thing is. Oh, I'm going to look up a list of the things that other people have done when they're working on similar projects. There's always a first step that you can figure out or a next step. So just find that and take it. Yeah, that's really powerful, actually. I mean, this is basically the mindfulness practice put into business, right? Like if you listen to people like Eckhart Tolle or others that are like the power of now, it's kind of like the torch in the dark forest, right? You you only really in the now moment, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Like none of us, none of us knows. So yeah, that's, that's excellent advice. I certainly have spent probably days dreaming about visions or dreaming about like ideas, dreaming where a business could go without then taking those like integral first step one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. And that part is important too. Kind of like a similar metaphor I'd use is, let's say you're, you're walking through a really thick jungle forest and you know that there's this like temple that you're trying to reach and it's like miles and miles away. So using that like one step metaphor and then every once in a while you have to like climb up a tree and then like look in the distance and see if you're still on the path towards that temple, towards that major destination. And like, you know, imagining all that things, but just do that, like check in and then go back down and you're just right back on the one step forward, one step forward, one step forward. Interesting. Yeah, I think this is something people can really learn from. So futurism was something to really like kind of embrace what's coming towards us in, in the so-called fourth industrial revolution, right? Like what the what is being built in terms of technology and, and it's not just science fiction at this point, but like, I mean, we just started talking about a muse headband. It shows you your brainwaves as a feedback. People might be aware like 3D printing, automated driving, automation of job, labor force, all that is really coming in the next decade. So how did running a company like futurism and being always exposed to the public feedback, basically. How did that change your perspective of the future? Hmm. Or did it? Well, it's it's interesting in that with any kind of media company, you're usually like talking to, what is it? Uh, preaching to the 
preaching to the choir and that, you know, the, the people that are actually reading about technology are probably the ones that are optimistic about its use and excited about it. So, you know, we didn't get too many like naysayers, you know, there's always trolls on Facebook, but most people that are reading futurism are just like, yeah, yeah, future, future, future. Right. Uh, and that is very much still the goal of futurism, which is to expand outside of that audience and get to people that are like, I will never have a self-driving car. I will always drive my car. And I'm like, newsflash, like, no, that's that's not true. <laughs> and the faster you come to grips with that, the better, because it's probably going to be illegal to drive your own car within two decades. So, right. Yeah, especially, was- especially in very dense areas, right? Yeah. Very interesting. So I, I like what you're saying. I think this is a truth we are experiencing in, in the broader society all over the world right now is that we have created these like media silos, right? Like you are preaching to the choir already to a certain degree. And platforms like Facebook and others kind of make that even more, more than norm. So I know that Futurism is a project that really like a passion project for you and then turned into a very successful business as well. But I know that right now you're in the brink of kind of going a new route. What are, what's on the horizon for you? I'm working on a few things right now. And one of them is an idea that I've had for a few years. And comically, I don't remember where the idea came from. I've just known it's been on my like list of ideas for a very long time. And it's actually something that I was like wavering between doing either that or doing Futurism two and a half years ago when we started it. And I chose Futurism and I'm really happy I did, but now I'm ready to finally work on this. The idea is called the Global Gift Circle. And um, basically I'm kind of like what we were talking about before, how my excitement, the thing I think that's most important has been a moving target. Currently the target is on bringing the world together and bringing people together. I think our world's extremely divided. It's a lot of like me versus you, US versus Russia, you know, and I want to remind people that we're just a bunch of humans on this like spaceship called Earth. Mm -hmm. And we're human first. We're not, you know, German, Canadian, English, American, Chinese. We're humans. And we have a lot of problems that like humanity, the entire globe is facing right now that really need a lot more global cooperation to solve climate change being probably the most important one. So I was thinking about the Statue of Liberty and how cool it is that France gave that as a gift to the people of the U.S. And now it's a massive symbol for American culture and freedom. It's like on every I Love America t-shirt that they sell. And that's so cool. That just doesn't happen anymore. So the idea is to bring that back and to crowdsource and crowdfund a massive like Statue of Liberty scale piece of art to be given as a gift from the people of the U.S. to the people of another country with the hope that people are then inspired by that and want to duplicate what we did and create gifts from their country to other countries and create a country-to-country global gift circle. Wow, that's mind-blowing. I remember you sharing a little bit about that when we last met in Costa Rica, but now it's like really clicked. So basically taking the inspiration from the Statue of Liberty story, France giving that to the US, but then starting in the US and, and just kind of starting a ripple of impact and seeing how the world picks up. Exactly. Yeah. I'm starting now to accept proposals for what the first art piece will be from major installation artists. And then I'm going to have basically the internet, Futurism, High Existence, Reddit, all those communities vote on what their favorite one's going to be. And then I'll do a crowdfunding campaign to raise the funds. And then all the while, I'm going to have a website developed where people can basically spin up their own campaigns to create gifts, kind of like a Kickstarter for, for country to country gifts. Very interesting. Country to country gifts. So you said it's the global gift circle, right? Mm-hmm. Is that something you, you feel is like more of like an artistic answer to all the challenges we face? Or do you, do you just say, no, that the, the core problem is we, we are too separated in actually like a, a big game of oneness and we need to create a bridge into that oneness? Yeah, I think it's a major problem. Obviously, we have tons of problems we're facing. And the, the very ideal outcome of this is that two countries that historically just hate each other, like Israel-Palestine is probably the best example. 
like one of them gives gifts to the other one. Like, that's so cool. And it's a reminder that it's generally not the people of a country that are like starting wars and, you know, are creating this, this us versus you narrative. It's generally the government and the people are like, actually, I'm not that pissed off. I don't really hate you guys. So I, I think anything that reminds us that borders are bullshit and that we should be working together, well, in very, maybe in tan- maybe some tangible, but mostly intangible ways help us to, to, you know, cooperate on things like solving the refugee crisis, for example. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 100% on the same page. And I think it is our generation and younger, like people that are millennials that are like 30, max 35 and younger, that we grew up with the internet being either part of our childhood or a normality, right? Like anybody who's younger than I think 27, 26, they grew up with the internet being a reality in their life, right? So the interconnectedness isn't just a concept. It isn't just like an ethereal kind of idea of some religion that we're maybe one. No, it's like a physical reality through technology. So I think in our point of viewing the world it you know like nation states are simply like an unsensical thing (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's going to be interesting to see how or how strong those remain as constructs in the next like you know 20 to 50 years yeah and if we go global or if we go like smaller and kind of return to um, smaller communities maybe city size or even potentially smaller than that or maybe both at the same time right so this is something i've been observing for a long time is that often in humanity and in our philosophy and our way of creating meaning when things are a paradox and they seemingly are not able to exist together, something really magical is kind of in the, in the mix. So how do you like just kind of changing the topic slightly, but staying at this idea of like where we're going as a society, like how do you see the phenomena of blockchain to play out? Because I know you're certainly more on the expert side than complete novice to blockchain. So maybe people can learn from you a little bit more. Um, how do you see blockchain kind of really entering reality now that we've heard about it for quite a while? I think it's, we're super early. You know, it's like 1996 in internet time, like almost nothing that was created besides like maybe email from back then is still like, you know, a major thing on the internet now. So it's hard to say how exactly it's going to play out. But the number one thing that blockchain is helpful with is basically removing middleman and being able to kind of like automate trust and basically not make it so that you don't have to, tr- I don't have to trust you in, other, in order for us to work together or for me to pay you or whatever else. I don't need some arbiter between us that allows us to trust each other. We can kind of like off, we can, uh, what is it? Outsource trust to the cloud or to computers, which is super cool. And the ramifications of that are like far and wide. Interesting. So you, you think trust is going to be like a mathematical equation at some point? Not, yeah, not even like an equation, just like it's taken care of. So let's see. I mean, there, there's so many things I could talk about, but one thing would be universal reputation system. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's so many disparate like trust systems. Like there's like, you know, your Facebook profile, how many friends you have. Like I can kind of get a gist of like who you are. You know, if you have like 150 friends on Facebook, like I probably won't even accept your friend request. I'm like, who is this person? And then there's like credit scores, like, you know, should I loan you money? But if there's one universal system that takes all of that into account, and if you say you know, screw someone over. And that's like on your profile for like everyone to see, like, you know, like that's kind of like an invisible hand of trust and blockchain allows for that. And then you can go to like just very simple matters of payment, say that you and I enter into a contract, then we could have a smart contract on the blockchain that says, it takes my money and then it has all these requirements that you need to fulfill to receive that money. And there's like automated oracles or basically information systems that are able to tell that smart contract if you did complete these tasks. And then the payment is automated to you when you complete those tasks. And if you don't, then it sends the payment back to me. And I don't need some some bank or like some person that we both trust. And that's introducing another human into it. And humans aren't you know, aren't the most trustworthy things in the world. Uh, yeah. So interesting. I mean, this is certainly one of the big hopes um, 
I've hear I've heard echo multiple times about blockchain is to kind of take trust into a complete new have us create a complete new relationship with trust, right? And I agree with you. Like trusting ourselves, I think is already a big issue. And then we, we talked about like separation and, and psychological warfare, like US versus Russia. I mean, trusting other entities or even trusting a bank or trusting somebody that loans you money. I mean, that's historically proven to be a very difficult topic to actually create so it works for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it kind of goes on my end again is like, yes, a lot of people are like, well, the society we've created has brought us how far we are. And I totally agree. But then it still really, truly does not work for everyone. So mm-hmm. the hope for blockchain I, on my end is that it kind of is um, like a, a 2.0 of what the internet has done, which is connect all of us and kind of create a new baseline of, of human equality. When you say it's like 1996 in the age of internet, so that you refer to that's how early we are on the topic of blockchain. Can you give us a little bit more? Like what else is it that people are like, maybe like too lost in right now, Bitcoin's course going up or down? Like, I mean, this, this seems so trivial if it actually is 1996. Yeah, I think it is fairly trivial. And I think it is still very early on the investment side. I mean, we don't even have a killer app for blockchain. Like the only thing you can do is payments and payments aren't even that good. You know, like sending uh, Bitcoin to someone can take longer than, you know, some other form of conventional non-blockchain transfer like Venmo or even like a, a, like a Swift bank transfer, which is crazy. But I mean, trading and payments aside, there is basically nothing that you can do with blockchain at this point, like nothing, nothing really useful. And even in 1996, we had email, which was incredibly useful. So in terms of like usability and the ultimate realization of, of blockchain's potential, so, so early. Got it. Well, email certainly still is around. I hear you though. I don't think I remember anything else. Maybe AOL, but they certainly um, are not around anymore. So They're not doing the same thing they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, let me switch the topic once again. I kind of want to want to get your opinion on a couple of ideas. So do you want to go to space? Sure. Sure. It's like a must do on your experience list. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant do you want to switch topics to space. Got it. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to go to a space party where it's zero gravity and like you're just like dancing you know, like while floating like this, it'd be incredible. But that's, that's something that's very much on the horizon. It seems like, you know, citizens traveling to space will be a very normal thing in the next 20 years, if not earlier. And, you know, prices are just going to keep going down and down and down. I don't think I'm, I don't really want to go to Mars per se, at least not with how it's going to be when it actually happens with the, you know, SpaceX's first expedition. That sounds terrifying. And like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'll see it in VR or something. But yeah, I would definitely love to go to space, at least to like uh, earlier, um, lower orbit. Yeah, Got it. So how does going to space though, like let, let's just kind of go, go a level deeper on that. How does going to space really like help humanity in that sense? Like we were talking about purpose society and, and building one. Like what does space have to do with that in your point of view? I mean, you know, Elon Musk will say that we need to have a backup home in case things really go to shit on Earth. And yeah, I mean, sure. I, I, I would definitely rather focus on fixing what we have here, considering Mars is like unlivable, basically. Like no one would actually want to live there unless they're really desperate. You know, I'm well, there is one thing to be said. You know, there's that um, famous photo of like the first times that first time the astronauts saw the Earth from like outside and realized like, holy shit, and had this big aha spiritual moment. And totally. they said it impacted their lives forever because they saw how like small and fragile and how we're like, you know, we're all on this big planet. So I think if you had more people having that experience, that'd be pretty amazing. If you had all the world leaders having that experience, that'd probably be pretty impactful. Other than that, I just think it's badass and cool and can't wait to experience it. <laughs> and that's, that's fun. 
<laughs> no, I, I love the honesty. I, th- I think it's pretty badass and cool too. And I have to admit, like as a six, seven, eight year old, I don't even know why, but I was certainly dreaming of being in space and walking on the moon and looking back on earth. So however that got seeded into my consciousness, it's certainly alive. And I, I totally agree with you. I think gaining perspective is one of the big points in doing anything we do. So we, we won't know what's going to be out there in space for us to gain perspective on. But if, if only more people than the few chosen ones that have been out of space, out of the atmosphere so far, will look back and be like, oh, wow, we truly are on this pale blue dot together. I think it will actually change the, the way we interact with Earth as well as then Mars. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So building a purpose society, I hear that for you being in purpose kind of started like after you dropped out of school and you realize, you know what, like, what am I even passionate about? What do I even want to like make a difference in? How do you think this, this could happen on a larger scale? Like topics like universal basic income, do they play a role? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, universal basic income is my absolute favorite thing to talk about. And the only reason that I'm not focusing all my time and energy into a UBI project is because I haven't figured out the best way to go about, you know, actually having that implemented. I see UBI as like the panacea, basically, for pretty much all the the world's problems, because I think it provides a, it's like a root level solution that has a ripple um, and allows us to address all the other problems we're facing. So for those unfamiliar, universal basic income is the concept of usually the government giving a guaranteed payment to every citizen generally once a month. The, the usual figure that's talked about is $1,000 per month per adult and somewhere around $400 per child. And it's uh, universal and guaranteed in that it doesn't matter if you make $100,000 a year, a million dollars a year or nothing, you get the same payment. I mean, usually it talks about having a tax plan such that you know, you're know you getting taxed more than $1,000 per month if you're making like a million dollars to just or to actually be able to pay for for it, but you know that aside, what this does is it provides this amazing safety net that no citizen can fall below. So right now we do have social welfare programs, but they're incredibly flawed, at least here in the U.S. And that it's actually um, pretty difficult to get them and to uh, stay on them, especially if you're not doing well. Like the reason why homeless people are on the street is because they're not mentally well enough to be able to submit the proper documentation, which is intense. Like even if for an average person, it's a lot of documentation. Yeah, they they can't do it. Um, So this provides an easy way for the people that are having the most problems in life to at least have enough to be safe in a home and be fed. And then possibly even cooler is that it provides a safety net such that if you want to go and try something new, you have the ability to do that without worrying about being on the streets or having to sleep on a couch. If you want to start a new company or if you want to you know, try the starving artist life and like learn how to paint. If you want to be a, um, if you want to do a job that generally isn't paid very well or isn't paid at all, like my go-to example is a mother who um, is a stay-at-home mom and wants to uh, volunteer her time with the local PTA that this basically the at the school to create programs that could possibly impact the lives of thousands or tens of thousands of children. Like that's just not a job that we value enough in today's society to make it a paid job. But those are super critical things that should, people should be putting their time into. So that's another cool thing is UBI enabling people to do this super meaningful work that mm. doesn't necessarily lead to monetary value. And then, you know, you could just say how many Einsteins have we missed out on because they were stuck working in the, in the patent office. And luckily, you know, for us, Einstein was like, you know, he worked on the weekends and eventually said, screw this, I'm going to work on my theory of relativity. But yeah, how many more of those are we missing because they're working some dead end job? So that's why I see it as... That's a really great question. And I think just to reflect back what I just heard you say, like these crucial social jobs, right, that kind of help us either educate children or re-educate each other, like depending 
and what, what stage of life we're at. I think I'm 100% with you. That is what is currently missing, like a proper valuation in our society, right? So what do you think is missing for universal basic income to become a, an acceptable social experiment? Sadly, probably a absolute destruction of the job market. You know, like I, I think that the, the rate at which jobs will, will disappear thanks to robotics and automation, that will happen faster than people becoming okay with universal basic income, um, especially here in the US where everyone's like quick to, to like point and say communists, even though this is like absolutely, you know, nothing to do with communism. You know, like self-driving cars are on the horizon. That's going to wipe out a, most of the most, not most popular, but most common jobs in the US. Truck drivers, Uber drivers, you know, taxis, couriers, shipping, all of that stuff um, will be wiped out. And then we have Amazon creating stores that require no cashiers. That's another extremely common profession. We have like probably hundreds or thousands of companies that are working on AI that will replace customer service and other like, you know, simple service industries like that. And the argument will be made by uh, economists and like some scientists that, you know, we've had these fears for a long time. We've always been afraid that technology will um, displace too many jobs. But I don't think, I think what they're discounting right now is the rate at which things are changing. I mean, come on, if you look at the 1950 to 2000, like a lot of things happened, but 2000 to 2018... Oh my God, it seems like we're at kind of like the knee of the exponential curve. And Absolutely. That, like, technology does create new jobs, but it's not doing it at the pace that uh, it's displacing them. Um, especially if you look at the new jobs that are being created, you know, we, right now we have the, the biggest companies in the world have fewer, way, like far fewer employees than the biggest companies in the world did a hundred years ago. Facebook is able to have like insane market cap with actually, I don't know what the exact figures are, but just not too many people considering their, their footprint. Thanks to tools like computers and internet that just make us more productive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's where the conversation kind of really hits home for me is like, they make us more productive. So that's the question in the first place. Are we as humans supposed to be production factors, which in the first industrial revolution, that's what we turned into, right? We turned from uh, whoever we were before into these like machine-like numbers in a production system or in a production chain or in a supply chain for products, companies, services we wanted. But is that truly who we are? If, when we talk about purpose, th that's kind of what I'm, I'm coming back down to is if I look, I'm right now in Sao Paulo because I'm going to a conference here at the end of the week. And it's like, wow, there's 20 million people around me. When I leave the, the house at 7, 8 a.m. in the morning and I see all those 20 million people line up for their job, I'm not sure if this is, I mean, this is, this is what I'm contemplating. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is what everybody should, should be thinking about at this point, but I'm not sure if this is the best use of their time, you know? And oh, I absolutely don't think it's the best use of their time. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of how these people will use their time once they're freed up because their menial job is not longer there. I actually think the amount of um, clarity and the next level of consciousness it, it is able to kind of like the possibility it can create to free those people up is, is immense because um, I was recently at a panel and I heard, I heard a friend speak who said, look, before we, like when we were in the, in the dark ages, no one knew that those were the dark ages. You know, I mean, when we looked back, it was really clear those were the dark ages. Hmm. So he kind of said, like, what's the next step now? Like when we look back into the 1950 to 2012, let's say, how are we going to call those ages? And which age are we going into? And, and I think there's a big chance that we're going to call these like the unhumane ages because we've not treated each other like human beings that have a heart, that have a soul, that have a purpose, that are here to like create something. You know, we've treated each other like production factors. You only are valuable if you have an eight hour job a day if not like what are you doing with your time why aren't you contributing to society the question i'm kind of pondering since a while and i love your point of view on it jordan is 
Like what needs to happen for people to kind of just arrive in this level of understanding, right? And, and how can we assist this possibility to come out? So we're, we're creative beings. Yeah, interesting question. Uh, in, in terms of uh, this being like the inhumane age, we've been doing that for millennia. Like, you know, we're, we're better at it. We're, we're more humane now than we've ever been. And, but we still have, a, a, you know, a long way to go. Um, the interesting thought, um, thought experiment for me is if we do have UBI or we just have mass unemployment, and we have even like 5% more of the population, or let's say even 2% more of the population, which is still like an incredible amount of people. If we have that many more people like working on their passions and doing meaningful work, what impact will that have on the world? Because it's, you know, it's, it's never 50% of the population that's making these big changes and pushing the world forward. It's like less than 1%. So think about it. If we had an, an additional 1%, we basically doubled people doing meaningful, impactful work. That would be incredible. And then a little bit, a uh, throwback to what you were talking about just a bit ago. Something else really crazy to think about is when automation and AI does reach a level such that they're at human level, when even the lawyer's job is not safe and AI can make better music than you can can be a better lawyer than you can, can do better podcast interviews than you can, which is absolutely going to happen. It's going to bring up this really crazy existential question of what, what is our purpose? You know, we're talking about purpose here. Yeah. And that's a great thought experiment for that is that if there's something in our world that can do everything that I, you know, everything that I do that I value better, then what is, what is my purpose? And I actually don't know the answer to that. What is humanity's purpose? Well, I think it's a wonderful question to ponder and to ponder regularly. Personally, just to kind of riff off what you just said there, I believe an AI or an artificial intelligence of whatever sort we're going to create it will be able to imitate everything we do better than we do it. So if you give it the logical parameters about law or about driving a car or like following a GPS signal or interviewing someone, it will do it much more efficiently, much faster, probably much more thoroughly than we do. But what I doubt a computer or a piece of technology is ever going to be able to do is to have this creative spark of imagination. It can maybe create music based on all the like possibilities that are out there. But to have this this like human curiosity that's kind of I would put equal with a soul, I'm I'm unsure if we're ever gonna be able to incept that into a machine. I'm gonna have to disagree with you. Uh, and I have two uh, two arguments for you. One is that um, I and I forget where I read this somewhere. I forget where I read this, but it was a scientist and was talking about how human intelligence is basically comes down to pattern recognition. We are ex- amazing at pattern recognition. So, and I think that that's, I mean, it's, this is something that you can't objectively say. Some people will say that there's some kind of like an indefinable spiritual, like consciousness thing that contributes to creativity. I think I would argue the opposite in that our brains are just amazing at pattern recognition. And we're, you know, seeing all these different patterns and we're good at kind of combining those patterns into new things that have not been seen before. And then my second argument is that AlphaGo beating the world champion Lee Sedol in Go kind of already disproved what you said in that there was one really defining moment in those five games that they played where the machine, where Alpha ago played this move that Lisa Dahl was shocked by. It was like something that is basically like a no-no in Go that you would never, ever do. Like only a beginner would do this. It's such a stupid move. Only after through like tons of analysis did they see how it was one of the most brilliant, beautiful moves ever made by a Go player. Now, and this is coming from Lisa Dahl. So I would argue that and the computer already did that. And it wasn't just imitating. In fact, it was going against what humans have done, what humans were doing in all the many thousands of games that it was learning from. So, Got it. Well, I love that you're disagreeing with me. That's, that's always a good base for any, any conversation to get to a new place. However, though, isn't it just that 
pattern recognition that you just mentioned is a pure functionality of our brain. And isn't it our brain that is working in zeros and ones and yeses and nos in, in logic chains um, in algorithms? And then we've created machines to imitate those logic chains and those algorithms. And we've created machines that are much more efficient than one singular brain. And the same with AlphaGo. I mean, yes, it, it pulled off like a, an amateur move, but sim- most likely, this is me without having any background knowledge of, of what, what occurred, but most likely because it checked out all the possibilities that it could play and realized, oh, this is the green light. This is the one that's going to get me through to my, my goal. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is all this is, I'm absolutely with you. I think machines will from now on until forever be smarter and faster in checking probabilities and possibilities on us. But what a machine doesn't have is the human heart and the intuition that comes to the human heart and the imagination that when we have a clear channel of mind, kind of, you know, it's like receiving images and not fantasizing about images. And this is a phenomenon that if we talk about purpose and humanity, I think we have explored very, very briefly. But if you listen to people like Albert Einstein, if you listen to people like Leonardo da Vinci and what we know about these people is they've all referred to this imagination, to this state of like outer body ecstasis where they've received images or informations about what we now call theory of relativity or spark of divinity, right? So I think I don't know these things, but that's what I think our purpose possibly can be is to realize we are not a brain creature. We have a brain and the brain is powerful and we've been able to create a collective brain which we call the machine body and the machine body is going to be so much better than us at the brain part but what makes us human and what makes us unique and therefore what makes us worthy to live and in purpose is possibly what else is going on other than the brain it can yeah i mean we, we don't actually know what's going on you know it could just be like the brain or even the body maybe it's a combination of the heart and the brain is giving us the perception that we're having this like spiritual download of things and in reality it's these you know we've subconsciously noticed these patterns over the last you know several decades of our lives and it accumulated in this idea that just sprang up and that's that's just like synapses lighting up i'm not sure but you know whatever the i think the outcome is the same basically whether or not whether it's like this you know this spiritual thing happening that's very like outside of us that's coming into us or if it's a server farm it's like rooms and rooms and rooms of processors that are analyzing all the information that's ever been gathered by humanity like it doesn't really matter where it's coming from if the outcome of what the you know of that server farm is like far more creative and out there and brilliant than what's coming out of uh, my head i don't know yeah, I don't know either. I think it's it's fascinating that we ponder that. There is a picture I found on your Facebook, actually, that says, one, we're in space. <laughs> Two, no one knows what's going on. And three, I love you. All three are true. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm going to leave I'm gonna leave this part of the conversation with that image. Jordan, um, as we're talking about purpose and the societal evolution and, and what might be the human purpose and why are we even here or is this all a simulation? Is there anything else you want to share with people? Or is there anything else you want to give people into their, their day as they're listening to this? I mean, kind of a throwback to what we talked about originally. Your life will light up and be incredible if you're willing to take the risk and throw yourself off the cliff and really dedicate your life to that thing that you're excited about doing. And if you're in a place where you you don't know what that thing is, like it just requires work to figure it out. And here I am nine years later after really beginning this journey and I'm still figuring it out. I'm still, I still haven't honed in on like the most perfect thing that is like my ultimate excitement. It's a moving target and that's totally okay. It's been the most incredible nine years of like learning and making mistakes and getting a little, just a little bit closer to that. So, the, you know, the faster you jump on that journey, the, the faster you're going to get to a life that is like pure bliss. Amazing. Let's, let's ramp it up with that. I, I think that's the most profound thing that anyone can kind of take under their day, no matter who they are. Awesome, Jordan. Thank you so much for being on the show, taking the time to, to share with people who you are, what you're about. I love that we talked about blockchain and universal basic income and like future and space and all these topics. And I think personally, I, I love conversations where it's not about being right. 
because again, none of us knows what's going to happen next. So, so thanks for pondering these things with me. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation between Jordan and myself as much as I did. Jordan really has a brilliant mind and I love these kind of conversations about all these topics that are really touching our lives, that are influencing our lives, and that are also, being very honest here, threatening a lot of people in the ways we are currently living, and therefore creating new possibilities and new opportunities to create a society that really comes from purpose, comes from love, and possibly can coexist with machines without needing to fear that we're going to turn into machines. So for now... Have yourself a great day. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast, either on iTunes or Spotify. Check out the Facebook page, Green Planet, Blue Planet Podcast, and be part of the conversation.